Good morning, Anthem. Uh, before jumping into the text, I just feel, after the announcement about the building, I, I just feel compelled to say a, a few words. As Brandon said, one of the things throughout this process, because um, obviously we go, man, we, we thought maybe the Lord was providing this, this building, and uh, in the midst of that process, we've said again and again, we, we have a, I guess a principle you could say we've developed as a leadership that we, we never want the body, the church, to end up serving a building. We, we never want to end up serving a building because financially it's just we're, we're indebted and whatnot, and there are other things that can come with that, but instead a building should always serve the body. And, and I just want to share that in this process I've been reminded of because we're, what's important about Anthem is who we are as a family. What's always of primary importance is that we are the family of God, we are the people of God, and God sometimes provides different means at different times for the people of God, for the ministry that He's called them to. And, and I was reminded this last week, I know, as a family, when we bought our first home, uh, I, I remember that we, we, it was kind of a similar situation, and it got into the place where we got into inspection, and then all of a sudden we had to back out of it, and we'd start dreaming about, uh, we'd even gotten to know some of the neighbors, and, and we were like, no, and it seemed like the most devastating thing ever. And, and we realized later, uh, as a family, uh, the Lord took us through a, through a process where then he ended up providing actually what became our perfect home. And, and it was something that we couldn't have seen at that time, but the Lord used even the almost purchase of that home to set that up. I won't go into all the details, but, but here's why I say this. Uh, at the end of the day, if the body ends up serving a building, it will always be a building. Uh, but if we focus always on and prioritizing being the body of Christ, being the family of God, then it won't just be a building, but it'll be a home. And so we're entrusting God. I'm excited to see where God is going to provide that future home for us. And so be praying and be anticipating that God is going to do a great work in our midst. And so we're excited about that next season, and we'll get started on that and looking into those details. Um, but for now, it's a time to be praying and looking to the future with anticipation. And I just want to also say a lot of you, I, I called this last week, who had pledged and, and just told you about this. And I just want to say how encouraging it is that those are values that are shared across the body. And, and how encouraging that was. So be encouraged in the midst of this uh, as we look forward to what's next. Uh, now, as the family of God, we, we gather as well to be encouraged by God's word. And, and so this morning, as we continue in the gospel of John, uh, we had seen this theme last week where Jesus talked about the need to come and die. We talked about this very countercultural truth. I would say countercultural for our day, but also countercultural for often how we think of ourselves in the church. That the ultimate call of Jesus, the call to discipleship, is ultimately the call to die to self and follow Christ. And, and today, in our passage, Jesus is continuing the same speech that he was in. Last week, we ended in John 12, verse 30, or 26, and we're picking up in verse 27, and it's actually still a continuation of that same speech. It's right after Jesus has said that a, a seed is meant to fall to the ground and die, and there it will bear fruit, leading to eternal life. And, and Jesus continues with this theme, and, and here's what he's going to do today. Jesus is going to say, that is very unnatural for you to fall to the ground and die to yourself. It's very unnatural, as we're going to see, for you to let go, to be able to actually die to this world and be able to let go, to hold this world with open hands and take hold of me and take hold of the life in me. You know, I was thinking about this and what really captures the dynamics that we're going to be seeing and I was reminded of an old, and I apologize if some of you have seen this in Sunday school or at camp or whatnot. If you haven't, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, so how do you catch a monkey? You're like, that's the strangest. Did not, didn't have that on my church bingo card this morning, right? Um, 
I've been told, because I've never myself caught a monkey. Uh, I, I think that's illegal, actually. Uh, but the way that you catch a monkey is that you put a piece of fruit in a jar. And, and, you, and you put it in a jar so that the monkey can just barely reach his hand in. Oh, there's that fruit. That glorious, glorious fruit. And the monkey takes hold of it. And the monkey's heart attaches to it. All of his desires will be fulfilled and satisfied with this illustrious piece of fruit, right? And he takes hold of the piece of fruit. And then he goes to leave. And the monkey's captured. And see, the thing is, the monkey, because he wants that fruit so badly, tries as hard as he can to escape. But see, even though the monkey could let go of the fruit, the monkey won't. And because the monkey won't let go of the fruit, the monkey is trapped. Now, not to too quickly jump to saying, we are the monkey, but we are the monkey. Uh, <laughs> in the same way, what we're going to see in this passage, because there's this interesting interplay between what it means to believe what it means to be able to let go of the things of this world, to hold them with an open hand, to take hold of Christ. There's this theme that's going to come up, which is what we behold, what we call glorious, what we value as most, most valuable, what makes us feel glorious, what makes us feel valuable, what makes us feel like enough, what makes us feel righteous, that those things in this world, the reason why Jesus is going to say we can't let go of this life is because there's something in our soul that just grabs hold of these things that we find glorious and we can't let go and what Jesus is going to do in this pivotal passage, I, I don't know if I'm going to get my hand up. There we go. Uh, it's like, this is going to get awkward. Uh, what Jesus is going to do in this passage, because this is at John's gospel, essentially the closing of the first half. And, and John has been building on this theme of beholding glory. And as John says at the end of his gospel, that when we see the signs that Jesus does, the miracles that Jesus does, we see his glory. And when we behold his glory, that's what leads to belief, that we know him as the son of God, and we find life in his name, John says. And today what Jesus is doing is it's kind of bringing it to this, this climax for the first half of Jesus saying, this is what it means to fully let go. This is what it means to fully take hold of me. This is what it means to actually be able to die to this world and find life in me. So what we're going to look at today is how do we let go? How do we hold this world with open hands? What we're going to look at first is the wrestling with the call to glory, the wrestling that takes place in our souls with, with this, this thing called glory and, and being able to take hold of what God has intended for us. Second, then we're going to look at why we settle for lesser glory and what Jesus says about that. There's some really interesting things he's going to do in pointing back to the book of Isaiah. And then third, how to see God's glory and how, or sorry, the key to letting go change up my manuscript. Uh, the key to letting go, thirdly. What's the key? What's the secret? How do we let go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, your word. Uh, Lord, we, we feel that tug. Lord, we feel it with our, with our careers. We feel it with, with good things you provided, Lord, that there's something that just tug, that we, we've grabbed a hold of it. And Lord, we just sense we can't let go of. And even though, Lord, that thing, we never quite get to taste it. 
Lord, whatever it promises, that that fruit, that glorious thing in our lives, it promises us satisfaction. It promises us complete fulfillment. It promises us love and affection and security and comfort and on and on and on. These things promise things that, Lord, ultimately, it just feels like we never quite get to taste them. And it feels at some point, Lord, like we're trapped just trying to take hold of that thing. And over time, Lord, we live lives that are so utterly exhausted. Lord, in many ways, we feel trapped by these things. And yet, Lord, we see these promises again and again of life, of freedom, of abundance in you. And Lord, here you have the audacity to say that it actually comes not by living for this life, but dying to it and finding life in Christ. Lord, would you help us to comprehend this truth? How unnatural it comes to us, but by your Spirit, you bring it home. And so, Spirit, would you apply this to our hearts? Would you utterly change us? Would you help us to take hold of the glory of Christ? Will we find life in him? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting, or or interesting, (laughs) interesting, I was reading the word, reading the word wrestling, Uh, wrestling with the call to glory. It's interesting that this starts with almost like a a scene where Jesus is, is, wrestling with something. Uh, Verse 27, it says, now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. So he's just said, I'm going, he's he's just predicted his own death. I, I, I am actually the one, the seed that's going to fall to the ground, and I'm going to die. You're called to follow in that after me, but I'm going to be the one who's going to come into this world and not stay in the grain of heaven and not stay in my comfort, but I'm going to come into this world and I'm going to die and lay down my life so that you might have life. And so he's just, he's just said this. He's just committed to this and, and told them this. And so he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You can sense this in Jesus. We're going to see this on the cross where we see this. Like, I'm, I'm troubled. I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm wrestling with this calling. But what am I to pray? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So one of the things that's interesting in in Scripture, and and I just want to unpack this here because I I think it's a theological truth that's very important to understand, that um, the way that we can understand these times when Jesus is wrestling is that in Scripture, the beauty of the gospel is that God, the creator of heavens and and the earth, the, the God who is indescribable, the God who's beyond what we can comprehend, He chose to come into human flesh. So in Jesus, there are two natures. There's a human, there's a, the nature of Adam, there's a man, human nature. And there's also a divine nature. And so what happens in scripture is in the human nature, you see this real reality of going, I I, I feel pain, I feel suffering. Am I really going to go to a cross and die? And so you see this sense of, really, would I take hold of that or would I want to hold on to the things of this world? But yet then you also see in the divine nature that, that resoluteness, that commitment, that, that seeing the glory of God, knowing the will of God, and that complete commitment, no doubt, not a moment. And Jesus says then, after this almost wrestling, he says, Father, glorify your name in verse 28. I will take hold of this calling. I will take hold of it. Father, glorify your name. And Jesus, we see in his obedience, we see in a human form, God coming and being obedient and pursuing life, dying to this world in order to find that glorious life. 
And what happens after Jesus does this is it kind of almost like, think of it like unlocking, like if you're playing a video game and it's like you reach the next, next level and it's like, and then something like emerges from the sky, like it unlocked, like he leveled up. Because all of a sudden then it says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. So what's happening there is that this voice from heaven, it's God the Father saying, I have glorified it. In John's gospel, I have brought glory into the world through my son and you have seen it. I have glorified my name again and again and again. And now that Jesus is saying, I will go to the cross. I will lay down my life. I will redeem your people and save them. And give them everlasting life. He says, I will glorify myself again. And I'll glorify myself on that cross. And I'll bring the ultimate glory in my redemption, in my salvation. And so we see that now, again, it's inevitable that God will bring about his redemption and it almost breaks into the heavens. You have, is it an angel? Is it, the, the, is it thundering in the sky? And it's always interesting in Scripture where we've, we've talked about this throughout John's gospel. It's this deep, deep truth that we have in Scripture that if all of creation is from him and for him and held together by him, it's from God, then at these moments when God breaks into his creation to say there will be redemption, it's not only, it's as if creation is shouting. It's as if the heavens are declaring and those in earth earth are hearing. God's redemption is redeeming all things. The creator is coming to save what was uncreated. And so Jesus explains the voice from heaven as inaugurating that reality. In verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus like I I like God wasn't t- like Jesus wasn't standing there like oh, really right <laughs> he's saying this wasn't for me like all oh, good he's saying it was for you and so you would know this truth now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out Jesus is saying now will the enemy of death be defeated now will he be cast out now will my life break in and how will it happen. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, what's interesting there, Jesus says, uh, he uses almost like a double entendre, as we'll find out. Like, there's almost two levels of meaning to what he says here. He says, I will accomplish this. I will accomplish this redemption. The enemy of this world will be cast out, and it will happen by me being lifted up. Now, we're going to come back to one aspect of this, because Jesus is actually quoting from chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, uh, Moses lifted, in the same way Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so also I will be lifted up. Uh, Here, he just says to lift it up, but he's referring back to something he said before. We're going to come back to that, the the Moses piece, Uh, because what Jesus is saying is not only on one hand, am I going to physically be lifted up on a cross? Right? When you read that, you go, of course, Jesus is saying, I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up on a cross. That's how I will redeem mankind. And that's how you can come to Jesus. But what's interesting is, as we'll see, as we get the theme kind of expands, Jesus is saying also something else with being lifted up. 
He's saying, in a way, I will be exalted. I will be lifted up in your hearts. I will be, I will be valued. I will be seen as glorious in what I'm about to do. I'm not just lifted up physically. I'm lifted up in value, and I'm extolled, and I'm glorified in what I'm about to do. In other words, it's not just how you can come to me, but why you will come to me. Why you will come to me. That there's something in me being lifted up that will draw all people to myself. Both creates the path to salvation and then also the draw of all people. And the crowds get the reference to death when Jesus says this. They say, the crowd answered him in verse 34, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son who is this son of man? Jesus has referred to himself as the son of man. You might be like, well, Jesus didn't say son of man here. Back in, I think it's verse 21, he, he referred to himself earlier in this speech as the son of man. Son of man is something that's got a lot of Old Testament references, especially the book of Daniel. And it's this new, it's this idea of the Messiah who would eventually come at the end of the ages. And they're saying, we know he would come, but why would he die? Why would he be thrown up on a tree and, 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 and shamed in this way? What are you beginning to tell us? And in other words, they expect that the Messiah would come in a way that we tend to think is glorious. We, we just saw this last week that they, they think he'll come. We saw the triumphal entry of Jesus. We tend to think Jesus will come with the forms of the world, right? That he'll come on the cover of GQ magazine, that he'll come on all the talk shows, that he'll, he'll come with the top TikTok feed or whatever it's called, like, right? That we think Jesus will come as the ultimate king or celebrity with power and whatnot. And so they're still not understanding, what's, what's, why would he do this? And Jesus goes on to say, the light is among you a little while longer. While you have the light, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the dark does not, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is just watch me, trust me. Jesus said again and again, I'm the light of the world. In the midst of what he's saying is in this world, in your, in your flesh as a human, you, you can't see what is most truly glorious. Uh, there's something in you that keeps you from seeing this. And Jesus is saying, so look to me, watch me. In the midst of the darkening inside of you and your inability to truly take hold of what is really glorious, See, what Jesus is saying is you guys go after all these great things. You have these ideas of vision. You have these ideas of grandeur. You have these, these great things and achievements you want to go after, and you think a Messiah is going to lead you there. And Jesus says, that's great, but listen, I have a much bigger vision for you. I, I, that is a small vision of what I have for you. That is a small lesser glory of what I have for you. I'm not impressed. What I want for you is a life beyond what you could comprehend. And if you will look to me because I'm the light, I will shed light into the darkness. Now, what we have here in Jesus saying, just follow me, watch me, is, is Jesus is calling out this aspect in us where this is something that's true for all of us as Christians today. That we in our lives, we want to take hold of the things in this world that we find glorious. And, and in taking hold of these things, it's so hard to let go of them. And what Jesus is saying is there's something about me that if you look to me, these lesser glories, only when you see me will you be ready to let go of it. You'll be ready to let go of it. So before we talk about how, we need, though, to look at, uh, let's say, how, uh, well, why we settle for lesser glory. Let's go there. Uh, 
So Jesus next removes himself from the crowd. So it says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So even though he's done these signs, they're not believing in him. They're not. And, and so what happens here is Jesus is almost like, hey, I'm going to go away. It's almost like Jesus says this stuff. And he goes in the other room. And he's like, you guys process this. And where they're at now is they're just like, they're not believing. And what's going to happen in this next section is John's going to give his last kind of final volley, his final explanation of why we're not able to see God's glory in Jesus Christ. In other words, why we're not able to believe. Why our hearts are so captivated by these things and unable to let go and take hold of Christ. Uh, It's kind of a moment of decision. So it says, though, notice that they could not believe in him. Now, I just want to point out one of the things in Scripture that happens again and again is we could just read this, and we tend as modern people to go, the options are either you believe in God or you don't. But there's always an object. So, see, what John's going to set up here is he's saying they didn't believe in him. And what they could think is, well, we just didn't believe in Jesus, so now we're just going about life where we don't have to be those supernatural, kind of dependent on belief kind of people, faith people. We just live without belief or faith. What John's saying is, no, 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 they just don't believe in him. But you do, as a human being, have to live your life in faith on something. You will have an object of faith. Either it will be Jesus or it will be something else. There is no such thing as building your life free of faith. I am the autonomous. I'm Invictus. I'm a master of my own destiny. I am, I am the master or the captain of my ship. I don't have to believe in anything. I don't have to put my faith in anything. I don't have to be dependent on anything. Someone else's truth or a truth claim. You will. And so John is going to say, what is that thing that usually we build our lives on, that we usually attach ourselves to, that we usually find faith in? Uh, John is then going to quote from Isaiah. Now, just read, if you just read through this quickly, you'd be like, huh, interesting quote, moving on, right? (laughs) He says this, so the word spoken, so they did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore, they could not believe. So what's interesting is is John here quotes. He begins to explain what's internally going on. So again, Jesus kind of goes in the other room. You guys process this. Do you want to die to this life, find life in me, place your faith in me, or do you want to place your faith in things in this world? And what John says now is, let's go dig down into what's going on in their hearts while they're processing, what's going on in all of our hearts at all points as a human being in this life when we're processing whether we'll believe in Jesus. And what he does is he quotes from, this is verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Now, if you know, if you've been around church, you may have heard of Isaiah 53, especially as we're going to the Christmas season, we'll hear it again. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant passage, very, very famous Old Testament prophecy, where it talks about the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, who will give his life for humanity, who will redeem God's people, who will be the true king. And in, in what John says here is he points to Isaiah's prophecy, and he says, uh, actually, Isaiah's prophecy already told us why here in the context of this verse, why we would not believe. See, here it says, you know, they won't believe what they heard from us. What are the verses around verse 1 of chapter 53? Well, if you go back to, the, the prophecy kind of starts in chapter 52, back in verse 13, and it says this. This is very interesting, what John's doing here. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, the suffering servant. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We just heard that language, didn't we? Hmm? 
Whenever you see echoes from language in a passage, you go, whoa, 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 something's being said here. It's, it's kind of like ding, 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 ding. These things are connecting all across this passage. Jesus has said, I will be high and I will be lifted up. I will be exalted in your hearts. And then John quotes from Isaiah 53. We're right in the passage. He says, the one, the Messiah of God, who will be high and lifted up, he'll be exalted because of it. But what's interesting is that exaltation is very ironic because it says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. They're astonished. Why is he? He's, they're astonished. They're glorifying him because they're amazed because he does this with a certain unexpected reality. This suffering servant's appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Then we have verse 1 of Isaiah, what John just quoted, and then continuing on. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He wasn't the strong, mighty warrior. All the ancient Near Eastern mythologies are, we, we, we have Marvel movies about them now, Thor, right? They're, they're all like the people that we're like, oh, put him on a cover of a magazine, right? You look at him, you, you have something go wrong, your house catches on fire. Ah, oh, they're here, the superheroes are here. We have certain expectations of what glory, what salvation will look like. But he didn't look like that. And no beauty that we should desire him. None, none, of you, none of y'all are swiping on Jesus, right, whatever way that is, to say, yep, uh, he's handsome. Is that a weird reference? Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's not on the cover of GQ. He's not the first person where you look at and you go, handsomeness, attractiveness. That makes him a savior. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is John quoting from this passage? Because John is saying, you are trying to find glory in this world, and you're taking hold of it, and you can't let go of it. And so you know what the Savior does? The Savior doesn't come looking like the things that we often find glorious in fact, what he does is he, just, he reveals the true nature of these things that have a lesser glory. They're fine in and of themselves, but when we worship them and we hold them up as the ultimate thing, they lead to death. And what so Jesus does is he doesn't come in worldly forms of glory, but Jesus comes in the exact opposite. He comes in the most inglorious worldly form. And what he's doing on the cross is he's saying this is the reality of when your lives are given to these things and they're turned to these things and you can't find that freedom in me. You can't find that life that actually satisfies. He goes up on a cross embodying the picture of the false promises of all the guys and the girls. He embodies the consequences and the pain and the the corruption and the fragmentation of our psyches and our spirit when we give ourselves to things that can't give what they promise. When we stare into the mirror just hoping that our beauty will be enough to make us feel like enough. 
What Jesus does is he comes in the most glorious form, and that is precisely why he's glorious, because he takes it upon himself, and he says, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to remove it, so you don't have to live for this thing anymore. All these things in my creation are good, but when they're made the ultimate thing, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol, and it just drives our lives until we're exhausted. And like we said last week, we, we, bear, we end up burying ourselves. They end up burying us a thousand times before they actually put us in the ground. We end up dying to live. It's, it's false that Jesus, Jesus says, well, you must die to yourself in order to find life. And we go, well, that's harsh, but instead I'm going to find life in this world. And he says, listen, you're just going to die, be dying to live your entire time. It's not a question of if, it's a question of if the thing you die for and give yourself to and identify with will give you life. What Jesus is saying is, I will give you life. And I will come in the form of all these things. When you look up to him, as we'll come back to, and you see him in that form, you say, that looks like a mere reflection of me and my pain and in my seeking and my hunger. He's come for his people. And he's come in the inglorious. He's flipped it on its head. This is why then John goes on to kind of interpreting this. Because he, he said, Isaiah said again, now he's going to go back to Isaiah 6. If you know of Isaiah 6, this is the famous when Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord in the temple and he sees his glory when he's high and lifted up. And, and after he sees God's glory, because in verse 41, he's going to say, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. See, that's the context there. But verse 40 of John is a quotation of Isaiah 6.10. After Isaiah sees his glory, then he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What's interesting there is John saying something that Isaiah, in seeing God's glory, he could believe and trust him. But instead, those who don't believe and trust in God, there's something that keeps them from seeing that same glory that Isaiah saw. And that's exactly what John's going to set up with the people who don't believe in Jesus. Because look at what he continues and says. Verse 42, Nevertheless, even many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes more from man more than the glory that comes from God. Again, John 20, verses 30 and 31. John has been working out this. We've said that's the thesis of John's gospel at the end. John says, I could have, I've, there were so many things Jesus has done. I didn't record all of them, but I've recorded these specific things. Uh, so that in seeing these signs and seeing these miracles and seeing the glory of Jesus you might believe and have life in his name. And John has had so far seven signs that culminate in Lazarus' resurrection two weeks ago. And in in these culminating signs in the resurrection, these seven signs, every single time, it's like a formula, starting with the wedding at Cana, where they see a miracle, they see a sign, and they see it, and it reveals the glory of God, some aspect of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then they believe, they confess belief in Jesus' name. It's almost formulaic. And he's repeating this again and again. He's saying there's something about seeing glory that leads to belief. And then here, right before we go to the second part of John's gospel, where we're going to go with the washing of the feet and, the, and heading towards the cross, the rest of this, the first 12 chapters are essentially about two, three years in time period. The next 
second half of the gospel is going to be about week in duration. And before he's ready to move on to that and say, let's go to the ultimate side of God's glory in the cross, what he's going to say is, first, you must check your heart. This is the final appeal. This is the final moment where I say, this is the thing that will keep you from finding life and having faith in Jesus Christ. And, and even like what I would say for us as believers, you go, well, maybe I, I, I do see Jesus. I've, I've, I've confessed him as Savior. I've confessed him as Lord. I put my faith in him, Pastor. I'm in church. <laughs> what does this have to do with me? Well, what's interesting is that they confess belief in Jesus, but yet for fear of those in the synagogue, because they received glory from them, they were fearful to even speak up. They're fearful to follow him. Uh, we as believers, there's something that even can keep us where we can try to follow Jesus and find life in him, but we live our lives trapped. And there's something that keeps us from being able to fully let go, to fully take hold of Christ, and to fully find life in him. And John describes it as this glory. Uh, there are two ways that we could take this. First, notice that it says that they receive glory from one another. So I'm, I'm going to talk just briefly about the social dynamics of how we receive glory. Uh, in other words, what, what was the nature of this thing here and the glory of it that, that attracts us to take hold of it and not want to let go of it? Uh, the first, we're, uh, let me do this. Uh, let's talk about the social uh, level, and then we'll talk about the stuff level. It's a very academic term, stuff. Um, so with the, the social, <laughs> I thought hard about that one. Um, with the, uh, the social level, uh, here's the thing. What people think of you will give you your sense of glory. Uh, this is true across all time, but I think it's really distinct in our time. We've talked about this in this series. If we live in a modern age where the defaults, and one thing we talk about at Anthem is we don't try to come here as Christians in the church and go, well, let's talk about the world out there because we're somehow like not influenced by the world. Listen, guys, we all drink from the same waters, from the same trough. Uh, we, we engage in the same media. We engage, by and large, I know there's... I know that's a whole cultural war at this point, but we, we still engage with many of the same truth claims. We're still all post-enlightenment Westerners, if you want to get philosophical. And, and there are certain assumptions that come that we tend to buy into slowly. And, and one of those is that in the modern world, we tend to think that all truth, all ethics, uh, all the, and we've, we've, I'm going to hit this quickly because we've already done it earlier in, this, in the series, but we tend to think that these things are things that we determine. They're internal to us. I can determine truth. I, I can determine, or my social group gets to determine truth. And so what we've talked about is that we don't think of everything as actually created. We think of everything as socially constructed. And, and because everything's socially constructed, all, all truth claims are socially constructed. All, all, all values are socially constructed. Why do we value certain things in our culture? Well, because, because a couple generations ago, they decided that's just what will be valued. That's just how we're going to define the sexes. That's just how we're going to define gender. That's on and on and on. This is just how we define it. It's all socially constructed. There isn't something outside of us that was created that we just have to adhere to and conform to. And with that, there is a subtle thing that really rises up that's acute of what John is talking about here with receiving glory from one another. If all of your reality is received from the society around you, all truth claims, what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, then it's very hard to have an, a sense of yourself if you don't receive it from that same social circle. Uh, in other words, the only way that you'll have a sense of being right or wrong is if the same group that actually defines right or wrong looks at you and says you're good. 
Uh, the only way that you'll have a sense that you are living for what you're meant to live for is if the group around you, your echo chamber, you're able to build it and they're able to say, you're living for what you're meant to, you have purpose, you have meaning. Uh, it's the deepest need for a human being is to feel righteous. Another modern world is to say to feel enough, to have value, to have meaning and purpose. And, and one of the things that happens with, uh, if we don't have an identity in Christ, what Jesus is saying is the thing that you'll take a hold of is you'll be so desperate, so desperate to find on a social level that sense of glory, that sense of being good, that sense of being righteous, that sense of being enough from those around you. And you're enslaved. And, and so often what this looks like in our day is this is why we are so scared, so scared to speak what we know is true because we're afraid of being rejected by that social group. We're so afraid to live in the way that we have a conviction of how we should live because we're so afraid of being rejected because if we are, then we lose the very foundation of our identity. And what Jesus is saying, we could go on and on with this, I don't want to belabor it, but on a social level, what Jesus is saying is what you find your glory in, the reason why it's so attractive is because if you lose that thing, you lose your very sense of self. Now, what Jesus also is saying is at the level of stuff, and it follows from this. If, if, if our social circle defines what's valuable, then also our social circle in some way will also define what stuff is valuable that we'll want to take hold of. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, uh, is he Roman Catholic philosopher? Uh, Rene Girard. And he had this theory called mimetic desire. Now, mimetic is like mimicry, like, right, like uh, imitating something. Okay, don't get lost in the terms. And, and it's a fascinating idea. And, and what he was saying was something that we see biblically, but also something that we just see in real life, which is we tend to find uh, our sense of what is glorious by what other people find glorious. In other words, we define what is glorious, what is good, what is viable, we should give our lives to, what we should take hold of based upon what those around us actually take hold of in value. And let me just give you an example. This is how we know it's true. I know it's true because I have three little children, okay? So let me break down what happens every single morning in the Dennings household. Uh, some kid, one of the kids will come up and there'll be a toy. Honestly, to everyone, it's been garbage, right? You buy kids toys for your kids, they play with it for a while, and then it's like there's just thousands of them laying around. They're like, I don't have anything to play with. And you're like, this, right? So one of your children, there's all these toys, they're not interested in them. One child comes up, takes hold of the toy. They begin just kind of playing with it a little bit. The other child comes up, wakes up out of bed, and they wake up and they look, and had that child not been playing with it, they would have just been like, garbage, right? But now that the other child is like, <laughs> and they're playing with it and you know, licking it and whatever else kids do, they look at it and they go, that is a delight for the eyes. That's not garbage. That's the holy grail. And then what ensues is World War III in your, in your living room, right? Because then they come over and they're like, that's mine. And they're like, you haven't played with it for months. And they're like, doesn't matter. Got it for Christmas. And they're like, give it to me right now, right? And so they start fighting over this stuff because what happens, what Gerard says is that's something very natural to human beings, which is mimetic desire. We copy the desires of others. And we look at what others find glorious, and we begin to define things as glorious. And, and one of the things that, that's been captured here is that not only is it our identities found by that, but this is why we tend to find stuff. Think about it. It flows from that social aspect, which is that... <laughs> This is why, as adults, we know this. I give a kid an illustration, but this is why when advertising works the way it does. Um, you, don't, you don't have somebody who's not, doesn't measure up to cultural standards of beauty, women, doing the makeup commercials. Uh, because what, we, what you do is you go, I, I want to look like her, and then I'll be beautiful. 
because that makeup, that product, that stuff makes me glorious, makes me enough. Uh, men, this is why we watch, uh, I don't know, some truck commercial, right? And some guy, right? He's driving his truck, and you're like, I want to be a man. I'm going to get a truck, right? And then we buy a truck. There's nothing wrong with trucks. But you know what I mean? Like, we have these things. They're like, I want to be like Mike, right? These are brilliant advertising things because we want to mimic the desires of others. We go, everyone else sees that's glorious. If I had that, I'd be glorious. Then I'd be enough. Then I'd be something. But here's the thing. What happens with Jesus is saying is all those things are fine. Shoes are fine. Trucks are fine. Whatever. Makeup's fine. All, all these are things that are in and of themselves are, are rather innocuous. But what happens is when, our, when we find our sense of being enough of our soul in these things, what Jesus says is they take hold of us and we can't let go. This is why we sense in ourselves. We can't let go of constantly exhausting ourselves trying to find something that will give us that sense of being beautiful of being righteous, of being good, of being a man, of being a woman. And we can't let go. And these are the things that have a hold of our souls. And what Jesus says is, I want to free you from that, and I want to give you life. And so last we're going to look at is the key to letting go. Um, one way, so obviously the monkey, how does it break free from the trap? The way that you may have already guessed it, or you may have already heard this at a camp and heard it, the way that the monkey lets go is that the monkey has to have something it wants more. The monkey has to see this as a lesser glory. The, less, the monkey has to have what the Puritan uh, Thomas Chalmers said is the expulsive power of a new affection. That there's something, a new affection, a greater thing that captivates you that you go, I just, I want that, and you let go. And then you're able to drop it. And you're able to be open-handed with it. And what Jesus says is not merely the call in your life is not just, hey, be in this world, but, but don't taste any of the fruit. Don't have any of the good stuff. Just all that's bad and nasty. Don't take hold of any of it. What Jesus is saying is, no, merely I want you to be able to take hold of me. So when you take hold of this, you're able to hold it with open hands, and you're not finding your sense of identity, your sense of self, that eternal security in that, but in me. Then you'll be able to enjoy those things in the way they're intended to be enjoyed. So how? How do we take hold of that glory? Just three simple things as we end here. Uh, how do we see glory in Jesus? Because this is Jesus with this last 44 through 50 culminating with him saying, look at me. Come to me. Find that glory in me. It's kind of emphasizing a lot of the things that we've already been over in this series. It's kind of boldly repetitive so we would see it. And the first is that we would see the Father sending the Son, the glory of God. Verse 44 through 46, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. You believe in the Father who sent me, I'm the Son, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is saying there's a darkness in this world. There's something in your nature that's, that's darkening your ability to see the light. And so I've come in so that you might see the light. How does Jesus do it? Going back to what I said, in, uh, when Jesus says, I was lifted up, I was exalted. Uh, and going back to, to chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, um, Mo, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so also I will be lifted up, and whoever believes in me will be saved. Uh, what happened back in Numbers, it's an interesting reference, is that Moses, when the people, they, they don't believe in God, they're grumbling, and they're turning away from him in faith, and he holds up, he puts a serpent on a stick, and he puts it up, and the people come by, and if they look into the eyes of the serpent, and they're bitten by it, then they're healed. A little interesting, huh? Jesus says, I'm like that snake. When I'm lifted up, I'll be like that snake. I, I will come into this world. The Father will send the Son, and I'll come into your nature. 
I'll come into human nature, and I'll take on all the things that are inglorious, all the things that curse you, all the things that hold you captive, and, and all the inglorious things, and all the lies and half-truths, and I will take them on myself, and the death that it creates, the corruption that it creates, the pollution that it creates, all your dependencies and temperaments, all those things. And I will take them upon myself, and I will be lifted up. And if you will look to me, and you will say, that looks like a mirror image of me. Th that looks like my heart. That looks like the devastation of my sin. And you will say, God, would you forgive me? God, would you save me? Then he says, it's when you look at that, that by faith is what righteousness is. What righteousness truly is, is not all the stuff and not all the toys and not all the, 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 the social things that we make of it, but what true righteousness, what's really glorious is the ability to look at God and say he is glorious and he is good. And in his redemption, the Father sent the Son in his love. That is what I'm made for. And he says, if you'll turn to me by faith, I will forgive you and I will make you righteous and I will free you. And what happens is in our hearts, we realize that these are not the things that ultimately define us. And simply what it is, is that we have a greater glory, which allows us to let go. We have a Father who loves us. And see, the thing is, we are made for, like I said before, we have this social understanding of our identity. You go, well, then what, what do we replace it with? Well, here's the thing. This is why Jesus says baptism. He says, when you're baptized, you'll be just like Jesus. And what happens? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the whole Godhead shows up and delights in, in Jesus. In other words, God is saying, the identity you're meant for is not meant for the world around you. It's meant for the uh, original community, the original social club, the original, which is the Trinity. And the Father will delight in you as you're made one with the Son, and the Spirit will bring home that message. So you don't have to give yourself to these things, but know that I'm a child of God. My question before just hitting these are too briefly is, do, do you know that? Do, do you know that do you know that reality? Do you know that there is a God who has sent, has sent his son into the world, not to shame, not to condemn, not to mock, but to give you life? So that your life would not be the, the line from Alice in Wonderland where she says, I'm running faster and faster just to say, stay in the same place. Where your life is not just running again and again to exhaustion until one day when you just collapse and die and that's it. But instead, there is a God who has said, I've come into the world so that you might have salvation in me, and that, that race would be one that would be run, that would be a race of joy in life. If not, Jesus says, look to me, high and lifted up, and see where all these things are leading to death, and look, and I will take them, and I will give you life. The other way that we look to the glory of God in Jesus is we trust the truth of God's word. Verse 47 and 49, Jesus goes on to say, Anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus is saying, I've brought the truth of who God is, revelation, into the world. And so one of the ways that we see the truth of God and the glory of God is that we cling to God's word. Uh, in the midst of a world that says truth is socially de uh, defined and determined and constructed, God says, I've spoken once and for all. And so what we do is we see the glory of God by looking to the truth of God, and we cling to it while wrestling with the narratives we, we're drawn to in the world, and we see over time how good God is. And that leads to the last one, which is that we see the beauty of God's commands. Verse 50, and I know that this is the commandment is eternal life. Jesus is saying this whole thing is for eternal life, not drudgery, but eternal life and joy. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is saying, I brought the very life of God, the creator of heavens and earth, so that you might be returned to life with him and relationship with him. And, and what we've talked about before in this series with this truth 
is that so often we wrestle with the things that God calls us to. Right now, here's the thing I want to say that I know is true for everyone in this room, which is there are things right now because the, the social and cultural narratives begin to pull you to go, I want to take hold of things that the world says I can take hold of and give myself to them because then it'll give me life. And, and a lot of the things, and yeah, I'm talking about sexuality, but I'm also talking about being able to live uh, just for ourselves, to find truth for ourselves, not to have to lay down our lives, and to find life in this world. And, and it's so easy to fall into those, and what happens is all the narratives are about doubting what Christianity claims. And, and what I would encourage you to do is make sure you push back in your soul and you also doubt the doubts. Uh, that you also, because God has said, this is for life, not for drudgery, not for just you to be enslaved to me for, for just no reason, but in fact, so that your will would be conformed to something that gives you life and joy forever. And, and so what, what is being said here, and what I'm saying is doubt the doubts, doubt what is the thing when God says you can have, or the world says you can have that thing, does God really say, as the serpent said in the garden? He wants to keep you from knowing good and evil. He wants to know you from knowing what it's like to really have life with him. And God says, no, I want you to have life with me if you'll trust me and listen to my word. And what happens is over time when we doubt the doubts, then over time we prove God's faithfulness and we glory in the glory over time. We glory in the, the fruit that our lives bear. We glory in the lives that God provides, not perfect lives, not marriages without problems, not lives without temptation and wrestling, not careers without ups and downs or whatnot and, and physical health. But on the whole, what we know is that there's a deep joy and there's a steadfastness. And God provides richness in life. And we prove over time we're able to glory in the glory. Jesus has come into the world to give us life. And he says, the key to letting go is to see me as glorious and see me as life. So that you don't take hold of these things in this world as your ultimate source of life and you let go. And it's a lifetime of dying to self, of increasingly letting go. Be encouraged. If there's just one thing, think of one thing, a way that you can begin to let go and loosen that grip. It's a lifetime process. But we learn again and again until one day when we exit this world, what happens is that our heart is ready. Our heart is ready to let go of this world and to take hold of him let go and take hold of him fully as he's taken hold of us fully forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord God, for this, this, these truths. Lord, would you give us life in these truths? Would you help us to let go? Would you help us to see what it looks like to take hold of you? So we would have a, an affection for you, see your glory in a way that allows us to let go. Lord, whatever it is that's holding us back, whatever it is that's enslaving us, whatever it is that's running us to exhaustion so that we're dying to live, Lord, would you give us life and free us from it? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.